You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to be ringing in October with an all-new coast-to-coast episode. First up, Nick Muncy, the founder and creator of Toothache Magazine. He talks to us about the origins of the magazine, his time as a pastry chef in Michelin restaurants, his drive to put out issues year after year, and how he gets intimate and personal interviews from the chefs featured in the pages. If you haven't seen it, it is a beautiful piece of art and a great addition to any culinary collection. Then we head to Texas to talk to the Brooklyn via Austin Quintent Why Bonnie. Their new album, 90 in November, is a great piece of music and song collections and storytelling. We talked to them about their recording process, what they cook for each other, and life on the road. Please enjoy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. It's really good to see you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on here. Yeah, I mean, I had to return the favor. You invited me to uh, the issue release party. So, you know, got to come on the show. Yeah, I'm super uh, blessed to have had that party and just like excited to see so many amazing faces show up for the magazine, including yours, and get to connect with so many people. So, yeah, I feel like. Um... Coming from New York and, and, and now living in LA, um, the amount of people and who show up to a party, especially on a weeknight, is a real testament um, uh, to how good the party is and who wants to celebrate you. No, for sure. I was like a Tuesday evening, like what industry people are going to show up to that? But I was like blown away by, you know, even the amount of chefs that showed up, I was like, aren't you guys supposed to be working? Like, <laughs> I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, you hit 10 issues. It's an incredible milestone. Most people don't get to make 10 of anything. Um, how do you feel about hitting, hitting that mark? Yeah, it came, it came quick. It took a long time, but it, it kind of was, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of a, a nuts thing to kind of see them all lined up now. And, um, yeah, I once once I hit issue nine, I was like, all right, I, I have to make sure to do an issue 10, like soon. Um, and then now I'm kind of like a little bit of a standstill where it's like, if I start 11, then I got to go to 20 or like that kind of thing. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know 10's a nice round number. Um, you know, I first heard about you because of your work as a pastry chef. Mm -hmm. Um is that what brought you into the field? Is that what got you into food, the fine arts of pastry? Yeah, I mean, I right out of culinary, uh, right out of high school, went into culinary school for cooking, and wanted to become a, a great savory chef. Um, kind of quickly uh, found that I was better at pastry, and that it was like a more interesting route to kind of go for me. Um, because of the arts of it, more artistic in some ways? Yeah, more artistic. Um, it's a little bit more controlled. You know, mm. when you're having like, you know, orders yelled at you, like, and you're cooking all these different things <laughs> yeah. in the moment, it gets stressful and you're sweaty and you're hot. And um, baking and pastry is like so much planning. And then it's an easy service. Like, everything's ready to go. It's all beautiful. Service starts for the restaurant and it's chill. You're just putting it on a plate at that point. Um, unless, unless you're behind, then you're stressed. But, um, I like that kind of like hard prep, easy service lifestyle where I could kind of, the better I was at preparing myself, the easier I could have it. Whereas you could prepare all you want as a, as a meat cook. But if you have 10 steaks and all these things getting fired at once, like that's hectic, it's, it's stressful. So no one's calling for medium rare ice cream, right? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the pastry arts and a lot of times when we talk to people who, who delve into that, they always seem to have an additional artistic side because it is in some ways sculpting and it is playing with forms and shapes and having an eye for that. No disregard to savory, but you just have seemed to find people who are like, I have other artistic pursuits outside of that. Um, was photography and art something that you were playing with on the side or did it sort of come more into your life as you found pastry um like growing up my mom was very um into making us do art projects so we were doing a lot of painting a lot of um we used to build these calendars every year for our family that like we would cut out pictures that were taken throughout the year and we'd make these little scenes where it'd be like grandpa's 
you know, sitting with hand-drawn bears that we drew in in a forest kind of thing. Or it was weird, creative projects like that growing up. And I, I was really into drawing and painting all throughout high school um, and really got into cooking, thinking that cooking was this artistic outlet that I was going to be creative and doing these beautiful things, not knowing the real, like the realistics of the industry and how hard it is and how, you know, uncreative it is for anyone that isn't the chef. Well, especially Um, in the kitchens you worked at, which were Michelin star chefs with big names. Like it's, I don't want to say singular and vision, but it's definitely a top down sort of creative approach. Yeah. And those are the type of restaurants that are doing the most beautiful, artful food. So it's like the food I want to be cooking someday. And and then once I got into that kind of level of cooking, there's like, it's hard to go back down. It's hard to do something casual once you're like in that, that very intense, like clean, all the discipline in the kitchen. Like it's hard to go back and like kind of grunge it out. So uh, once I really got into fine dining, it was like, how do I keep, how do I keep going up? How do I keep leveling up and getting to better places, becoming a better chef? Like, yeah, to the point where it's like, I still have ambitions where I want to be one of the best pastry chefs in the country, or at least known to be one of the best pastry chefs in the country. Like all those kind of, uh, goals are still like in me, even though I do the magazine, which is definitely a side, a side thing. But, but I mean, the, sometimes, oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that the photography really started as like a way for me to up my Instagram game um, mm. and get featured in, uh, there was a, a magazine I wanted to be in and they wanted me to supply my own photos. And for some reason, I thought renting a camera would be easier than hiring a photographer. So uh, you're not wrong, you're <laughs> not wrong, especially if you have the vision of what you want it to be and you have an eye for it. Sometimes yeah. telling someone your vision is you're like, no, man, just give me the camera. Please just give me the camera. For sure. And I think just like the magazine, like photography was the same where I was thinking like, this can't be that hard. I can figure it out. And that's really like all these weird creative things that I'm doing with the magazine. It's all like things that initially I think, oh, this is going to be easy. And I'm just going to like figure it out as I go. And it's way harder. And, you know. I mean, look, it's it's one thing to have this idea that you're going to get a camera and you'll shoot some stuff for Instagram and you'll submit. It's a whole other thing to put any project together, let alone a print magazine, which you started, what, five years ago, six years ago? Yeah. As, especially, and I, I think print is having a rebirth a little bit, but back then print was sort of like you needed money, you needed big advertisers and things like that. Mm-hmm. How did it go from a daydream to reality? I mean, I, I would have been working at a restaurant called Qua. Um, mm. Shout out, San Francisco. Yeah. And I, uh, I could, couldn't think of like the next step for me cooking wise. Like I was pretty tired because um, I had done about like five and a half years there. And there weren't any restaurants in the city that I felt like were a huge step up that were hiring pastry chefs or needed a pastry chef like the couple that were that I did feel like were like a, the next level, they had people in place or or they didn't need a pastry chef, that kind of thing. So I really like didn't know what to do. And I'd been playing around with this idea and like telling some friends like, oh, I'm thinking about doing this magazine. And they're like, yeah, 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 do a magazine. That's whatever. It's not going to happen. 
And uh, once, <laughs> don't you love friends? Yeah. I mean, I would have said the same thing. Like someone's like, I'm going to make a magazine. Even now, like I get people like emailing me, I'm going to make a magazine. You're like, cool, man. Ask me any questions you want. But like, sure. I, I doubt it's happening. So <laughs> I, I hear the same thing about podcasts. Like, I'm getting mm-hmm. into podcasting. I'm like, I'm an open resource, whatever you want. Number one thing is consistency as best you can. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, um, you know, good luck. Yeah. But the, the, the moment I really felt like I had to like go through with the magazine was once, mm. once, once chefs started sending me stuff and they were, oh, yeah. people were putting in time to give me content. Then I was like, okay, like I can't waste people's time now. Like they've spent time to put a, like collect their images or take images or like meet with me for me to take photos and interview them. Like at that point I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta make this happen. And then it was a lot of trial and error and learning and asking questions. And Yeah. How did you curate those first few chefs? Was it all friends? Was it people that you liked in the industry? Was there anyone who you had always wanted to talk to and said, oh, no, I have a reason to talk to you? Uh, it was pretty much all friends. Mm. And um, I did a lot of the magazine myself. Like I did like some little sections on like custards and kuzu starch and stuff that were just me trying to fill pages. Sure. Um, sure, and, sure, sure. And, you know, it's, I didn't know how to interview people. And I almost find interviewing chef, uh, like friends are the hardest because they don't take it as seriously, or at least at that point. So it was right. like, right. I was getting like a couple sentence answers from people. Like the interviews in the first issue, they're not, they're not mind blowing. It's, it's almost like press release bios plus like, five or six questions and so um yeah it was it was all friends i was mostly thinking it was going to be like pastry and a lot of recipes just because of your background yeah there wasn't a lot of pastry magazines out there like Mm -mm. you know there's art culinaire has the desserts but like Yeah, yeah, yeah usually pastry chefs aren't featured in that it's usually the restaurant and the pastry chef gets a page or two at the end of each section um so you know, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do this American pastry magazine. And then I put a couple savory chefs in the first one. And then at that point, I was like, all right, I need to make it 50-50. And kind of kept that sense, just keeping it half savory, half pastry. It's a good um, balance. I mean, you don't read a lot about pastry chefs. Yeah. Even to this day, they don't get the do that. I've seen it now more with like press releases or like, oh, we're opening up. A restaurant here's um, eight paragraphs on the the savory chef, and then here's like one mention of the pastry. I was like, oh, at least you're seeing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's good to see it. I mean, it's interesting. It's such a different uh, mental approach of to recipes and cooking and being part of a team. It, it's really great to read those stories as well. It's a good balance. Yeah, I I always kind of wanted to give a good portion of the magazine to pastry, just because like being a pastry chef, there's it's not really featured that much. Like it's always like maybe your dessert picture gets included in an article, but the chef is attached to it and like you, or maybe like your name maybe gets mentioned. And so um, other than like a couple big dog pastry chefs that you like knew in New York or San Francisco that were like Will Goldfarb, Dominique Ansel, like yeah, it's exactly. A, Alex handful. Dupac and Dupac. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, there were so few pastry chefs being highlighted that that was also a a big part of me wanting to kind of 
give them a lot of a lot of space like you know pastry chefs get the same amount of pages as a savory chef in the magazine um everyone pretty much gets the same amount of pages no matter how high end and michelin star they are or how like beginning young like doing something cool out of a food truck you know i like that because obviously if you know the industry you can be like oh wow i can sort of power rank the chefs mm-hmm. in the magazine but if you're coming to it especially with fresh eyes or not knowing everyone or not knowing the scene, everyone gets equal weight, which is really great because, yeah. you know, some of the big dogs don't need another article. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes those stories have been told a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard not to get the generic answer out of some of the big name chefs that like they always give. And um, my like some of my best interviews have been like people I hadn't heard of like until like a month prior when I'm like, all right, I'm going to this city. Who are the pastry chefs in the city? And like stalking Instagrams and like online trying to figure out, you know, who are the people in this scene? And yeah, some of those people that don't have mass press and have won awards, like they give me the most thoughtful, like interesting answers. And like, we have great discussions and it's like, wow, like <laughs> this is great. I know. They've been saving up those answers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I got to ask, uh, why a printed magazine? I mean, it's beautiful and I, and I love it, but you could easily do with social media and a blog and the way that you could manipulate content in that way, something that has a much larger footprint. Yeah, I mean, I had the idea for magazine and I, I kind of thought about digital, but to me, like a digital magazine isn't a magazine. I mean, it's a blog. It's sure. just, yeah. it's, it doesn't like nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. But I wanted something that felt real, that felt like tangible that you could hold, like holding a, see, seeing a picture of like a dish of mine on somebody's website is one thing versus like holding it in your hands and like being able to show people like, I don't know, it's something more special to me about, about that. And cooks and chefs love to collect cookbooks and magazines and all that. Like so many chefs have, you know, as many of the lucky peaches that they've been able to collect and they're always on the search for their missing ones, all that kind of thing. I got some holes and I got a stack. Yeah. And so for me with the magazine, I was like, I want something real. I think there was also, I don't think I knew it at first, but like once I put out the first one, really kind of thinking about, you know, and cooking you're creating and it's eaten every night and destroyed and you start over fresh and like to have something that lasts that like, you know, 20 years from now could still be on someone's bookcase that they're going to flip through randomly. And they're like, Oh yeah, I forgot about this. Or it's like, you know, dig it out of, you know, a dusty old box in a basement 50 years from now. Like that seems super cool. Um, and so I, I think all that kind of stuff kind of really, uh, made me like appreciate print and really have an appreciation for people who are trying to do like these independent fun magazines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick musical break. I want to talk about some of the earlier years and move on to uh, the latest issue as well. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Nick, founder and producer of Toothache Magazine. And right before the break, you you talked about something, which is the inevitable destruction of the art of the dishes that create every night and having a journal or something physical that reminds us of it. And it is fun to go back every once in a while and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about how big that dish was. Like, oh my God, like this was such a moment. Um, when you're curating the chefs and, and the dishes for uh, the magazine, are you trying to find stuff that's a little bit evergreen or are you trying to find stuff that's like of the moment? Definitely evergreen. I think, you know, so, some of the daily topics can creep their way in, whether it's, you know, the politics or um, even just like talking about current food trends, that kind of thing. I, I usually don't ask like, what's the new trend? Cause yeah, like that's the worst question to get asked as a chef. Cause you're like, I don't know. I don't want to be doing the new trend, but um, yeah, I, I try to keep things evergreen, try to keep things. Um, yeah. So that any, anyone can flip back and it'll make sense. Um, maybe the food will be dated at some point, but uh, at least you'll be getting their thoughts in that moment. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's when you start aggregating it all, even if you don't ask about the trends, you start to see the trends, especially if you do something over five years and you start flipping back, you're like, oh, yeah, couldn't escape pork belly. Oh, yeah, that the, we put this one out during ramp season. Okay, I see it all coming together. And the buzzwords, whether you like it or not, start populating. But even the macro trends, oh, you know, it's like you have Yangbang Society in issue 10 and like the unbelievable rise of like Korean food or like this looking back into people's culture post pandemic and it starts to come a fuller picture just through the different people you interview. No, for sure. And you know, the, the last two issues before issue 10, I was asking people like, how's the pandemic going? And like, so yeah, if you read that 10 years from now, is that going to be cool? Or are you going to be like, I'm, I'm sure everyone's going to remember the pandemic at that point, but um yeah, there is a lot of that because at that time, that's like what everyone was thinking about and like dealing with. And what I thought people, if they're going to buy the magazine, what they would want to know, hey, what's this restaurant doing to survive during the pandemic? What Or what now that it's kind of on the tail end-ish, I guess, uh, like what did they do or how did they survive? Like this issue, I didn't really dive in into that as much, but um you know, some of that's still like people's people pivoted. And so they're like, Oh yeah, I was doing this. And then I switched to this and that's what we're featuring. But also to your point is just, um, I feel like everyone's talked about the pandemic, at least from the restaurant business point of view, mm-hmm. not saying it's still been affecting people and the ups and downs of it. But, um, you know, if I'm getting mass emails from Uber saying that you don't need a mask in a car, the idea of, <laughs> thinking that there's probably other questions to ask about, about like the effects of the pandemic on a restaurant business. It's probably out there. For Um, sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I got to say, reading this magazine, it was so intimate and personal. Like, I I don't know, like I wasn't really expecting, I don't know what I was expecting when I first really dug in, but it really felt that I was getting an honest look at chefs, which is, you know, rarer and rarer these days to feel that someone is going to be with maybe the exception of like a podcast, but in a printed material, personal, honest, intimate, true. How do you get that out of chefs? Was that a purposeful approach? Uh, Um, What do you do to like get 
you know, to ask the questions to get that out of them. Yeah. So more recently in the past couple of years, I've tried to lean into more of the fact that I'm a pastry chef. I'm, you know, I always had the magazine as like, oh, it's for chefs by chefs, but like really what can I bring to the table to make something unique as a chef interviewing chefs? It's like making them as comfortable as possible. Um, you know, the, the, the interview maybe in the magazines only a few pages, but I might've sat down with them for an hour and there might've been, you know, 15 minutes on either end and some stuff in the middle that was just us bullshitting around about restaurants or like how, their days going, like how many covers they have, like kind of just getting into like that mode with them is of like, Hey, this, this is an interview, but I'm just going to record us chatting and I'm going to pick out the gold nuggets. So don't stress. And if I have, if I don't have enough good stuff, then I'll reach back out to you or which has never happened. But, um, or like if, you know, they don't like what they said, they can make changes. That's also like one of my big things about making them comfortable is, you know, I'm, I'm going to send them the interview. Um, especially in these past few issues, I've really gotten better about making sure that I send everyone their interview and letting them read it and make any changes. Um, cause that's like, that's the, the, the worst thing is like, you don't want to be betrayed in a way that you don't feel like you're betrayed. And for me, as someone who's editing it, like I was there for the conversation, so I don't always catch when maybe something sounds bad that maybe they're going to catch. And like I can actually sound like an asshole in this, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's I, I just try to take all those stressors off of the interview, um, right? Whereas for you yeah. doing a podcast, it's like it's done. So they have to be it's on. Not- like they don't have to be on with me. Like they can they can take a call in the middle of it, and it's cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, the approach, especially I think as you get more and more deeper and longer into this type of working with chefs and letting them tell their story, it's not about gotcha journalism. Uh, you know, it's not about like we caught them out on something. It's about letting them tell their story. And I think maybe, I think maybe one or two times, there's a couple questions I had to ask because if we didn't ask it, the story didn't make sense. And I was like, if you don't, if we can't ask this and we can't do the interview, but outside of that, most of the people that you're interviewing, there's no dirt. It's not like it, it's, I mean, it's like, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, type of profession in some ways it's you know, until you get to the celebrity and then it just becomes a celebrity thing, or you have the really bad people, then it's like a really bad, a bad people thing. Um, but, you know, being able to, you what you do magazine yourself right it's it's all you who shoots it and interviews and edits that does give you that freedom to to present it the way that you want to present um but how do you go about that process where do you start is it picking the chefs is it picking a theme are there things where you're like i i save this to last because i hate doing this part of the process um what's your approach in putting it all together yeah um you know it's always figuring out the list of chefs first. Um, some of them are people that, you know, I know I'm going to be traveling somewhere for something else, uh, whether it's cooking related or vacation. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to knock out some interviews also to make it kind of a work trip. So there's those, there's those times where I know I'm going to be somewhere. So I'm going to look for people in those places. Um, and then there's 
a lot of times it's, you know, maybe it's a PR company that I'm comfortable working with them being like, Hey, like, thanks so much for featuring this chef. Would you also like to feature this chef that we also represent? And I'm like, yeah, that's actually someone I want to talk to. Um, and a lot of it's also just like looking at Instagrams and going through, uh, even like food blog sites and that kind of stuff, seeing what, what are the hip restaurants, what's, what's not being covered yet or like what just opened and seems interesting. Um, so the, the, where I get the chefs or where I pick them from is kind of all over the place. Um, uh, usually, usually there, I have some type of connection to them, whether it's a mutual friend. Um, but there is a lot of times also where they're, they are a complete stranger that I'm DMing on Instagram and then, yeah, just kind of putting it together. Um, I've kind of found that a lot of people flake. And so uh, I try to overdo it and then find plug in the missing holes that I think there are in the magazine. So if I think there's too much savory, then I'll try to get more pastry people in and focus more on that later in the process. Or if I think I'm getting too many like Korean cuisines, I'll try to find someone doing something different. Like just so that it feels varied and it feels interesting. Um, yeah, I, I don't want it to be all just like fine dining white plates on white backgrounds from Michelin star chefs over and over again. Like those magazines are out there and you know, they're that. And, and I want, I don't think it's as interesting to me anymore. Um, mm -mm. and so you evolve, you change. Yeah. Um, I'm I really liked your editor's note in this last issue about that evolution, not just in the magazine, but like even to how often you could put it out and like that life changes. And, you know, especially when you start a project, it's easy to get, you know, issue one, episode one out. And then two or three, you're like, yeah. And then like that middle section happens and you're like, am I doing this? You know, you'd said earlier, you're like, oh, I did, this is issue 10. So if I do 11, do I have to do 20? How do you persevere? You know, how do you find that balance? And, you know, do you find that people outside of you care? Like, do they like, hey, like, where's the next issue? Or is it just like, what does the project become to you? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a good chunk of it where I was just like excited to get started on the next one, even though it was super stressful. Like once once it was started, then I, again, like with the first issue, felt like I had to finish it. And I was keeping myself on like a really strict timeline where I was like really stressing myself out to get these done on time or the right. time that I thought. And sure. then more recently, it's kind of been like, I'm making this my, like, I don't have a boss. I'm the boss of this. Like, yeah. I don't have anyone to report to, like, except for, yeah, I guess people that are like, hey, I only received one issue this year. And you're like, I only put out one issue this year. Like, yeah, you got it. Um, one on one, baby. You got yeah. it. So, I'm kind of trying to take that self stress out of it um, mm. and kind of do them as I feel like I have time, especially, you know, 10 issues in, I've realized it's not like a business that makes a lot of money. Like it breaks even. And so it, it is hard to like have a bunch of added stress thrown on my plate. If, if it's just a hobby kind of like it, it is like a very, put together magazine at this point where people thinks it's like a, a team behind it, but it's just me. And it, it does feel like a hobby now. Like I'm not making money. I'm not paying myself. So like what's, what's the extra stress. And so 
um, I'm trying to convince myself to be more relaxed about it and put them out a little bit less uh, on a strict timeline. Um, I do have a baby on the way. Uh, thank you. Um, so, you know, priorities might change. And that was a lot of that editor's note trying to say it, but not say it as like, you know, I got stuff coming up that, you know, when I'm not sleeping because of a baby, am I really going to want to think about putting together this magazine right now? So I don't, I don't want to promise people anything and I don't want to, uh, you know, say like exactly this is going to continue on two issues a year for forever. It's like, I I don't know when I'm going to do the next one, but I'll do it when I feel like I can. And that I think I can put together something great. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, look, I think so many people have ideas that don't even get started and you've, you've, you've done 10 issues, 10 beautiful issues and you've shared a lot of stories. And the great thing about it being physical is that there's still this idea that people can discover it. You know, a shop has issue three, seven, and nine on the shelf somewhere. And you're like, oh, what's this? What's, you know, what, what were these stories? What were these interviews? Yeah. So, I mean, I it still makes... get, yeah, I still get sales like on my website where I look, I'm like, oh, someone just bought one of every issue that's still in stock on like that I still have copies of. And you're like, cool, someone definitely just discovered this and now they have a lot of reading ahead of them. But um, yeah, that's always cool. Or, or I meet people just in person where they're like, you have a magazine? I'm like, yeah, it's called Toothache. And I've like, never heard of it. I'm like, check it out. And then I see them later and they're like, oh, it's awesome. And you're like, cool. It's uh, cool. It's, it's something that like is, yeah, I, I have copies of a lot of the issues left and it's cool to be able to, send people that way to check out work that's already done that I don't have to think about. <laughs> Which I appreciated. Thank you so much for the issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, listen, congratulations. If people want to check out the magazine or follow along um, on Instagram, where can they go? Where can they discover? And also pick up some very cool merch yeah. as well. Uh, uh It's got all the available issues that aren't sold out on there. Uh, that's all of them except for issue one and four and merch and all that and then instagram is toothache underscore mag um awesome yeah melissa congratulations it really is beautiful and if anyone's looking for some really great interviews and also to see how to put a magazine together as a solo venture i can't recommend toothache more than than enough yeah you Uh, want to make a magazine shoot me an email i'll 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 tell tell you all about it Tell you all about it. There's you no probably secrets. won't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think a lot of people. I, I mean, I, I even myself. I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a magazine, and then I was like, I don't want to do a magazine. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Uh, well, listen, Nick, thank you so much. We have a song from the archives, and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This week on Meet and 3 from HRN, we're dissecting the mojito, one ingredient at a time. Because it's fizzy water and it's different to other waters we've seen, it must cure something. I actually hadn't heard that Sir Francis Drake story before, but it was so typical it had me rolling my eyes over here. There was no other substance around where you could get so much booze per buck. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Kendall and Blair, why Bonnie? Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us at Snacky Tunes. Uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's uh it's so great to have you. Um, I myself have lived in Austin and Brooklyn, and so it's always great to meet other people who have that same residency history uh in their in their life. Yeah. A fellow, a fellow traveler. A it's fellow definitely transplant. a transplant. <laughs> it's definitely a pipeline. It feels like. Oh, it was, I used to see, I don't know if they still have the shirts, but it was, you know, the I heart New York shirts, but instead of the heart, it was the, the outline of Texas. Yeah. Which I, I thought. I haven't seen that. Uh, which I thought of like, there's, it must be enough people to necessitate that shirt who make the move back and forth between New York <laughs> yeah. and Texas. Um, but look, let's not bury the lead. Congratulations. First album, 90 in November, which uh, does remind me of living in Texas. Um, and, uh, can, you know, how's it feel to have, it's been out for about a month now. Like, how's it feel to have your album out in the world? Feels good. Yeah. Yeah, I was 
the other day I like to rehearse, like I sing in the car to practice my vocal parts when we mm-hmm. perform live. And knee jerk was like, I need to go to the SoundCloud, like secret link. Forgot, but it's fully out. <laughs> Just go <laughs> right to Spotify listen. or wherever you stream your music. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, you know, obviously um, a debut, some people say you spend your, you know, your whole life writing those first tracks what sort of culmination did you feel uh, to have the first album out? Is there memories from different parts of your life that have all come together to put this batch of songs um, in one place? Yeah, it definitely feels like this is a culmination of all of our like past experiences. Um, Kendall and I grew up together in Houston mm. and a lot of the songs and the imagery that is throughout the album is inspired by our experiences there. And I think it's nice to have the first album kind of be about our past and our roots. And then now we can move forward. The journey with the album too, you know, we had what we thought was going to be the record right before like March, 2020, before we released voice box. Mm-hmm. And that greatly evolved. I'd say we re- like every single song is different that we ended up going with. Um, so it was kind of like a long and slow process that, it, yeah, it feels great that it's, it's here. It's ready now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think some people looked at the pandemic and, and, and having to put a, a pause on some things as a frustrating time, but yeah. having that extra, space to reflect and to rewrite and to recraft it seems like it was a real leveling up of the songs and what you wanted to say and and how you want to present um your art to the world totally yeah like kendall said the songs that we originally had i feel like i had just kind of very quickly wrote them like Mm. i was rushed almost um we had been waiting so long to release the EP that we just wanted to get the album out. Sure, and sure, recording. sure. And then, like you said, the pandemic was very much a pause on everything. And like, you're kind of forced to sit and reflect. And well, it changed how the songs usually come together because usually what we'll do is I'll write a song and bring it to the group and everyone will write their parts while we're like in the room together. Mm. But this way it was like, I wrote a song, recorded it on GarageBand and sent out a demo to everyone. And everyone like wrote their parts alone separately. And that was a new experience. Yeah. I mean that, that time and that space for collaboration, I think allows for people to find a different a different version of maybe what they love and then expand on it. And, you know, it's in many ways, while we were all disconnected, there was like a sort of coming together, especially when you're creating during that time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that, you know, you've you lived in Houston and Austin and Brooklyn and, and we were chatting a little bit before about how there seems to be this pipeline but I've always found it interesting because it seems like such like this weird juxtaposition of like Texas being so expansive and 
dreamy and sometimes and huge and like nothing. And then you go to Brooklyn and it's so packed and kinetic. What did you like about that opposite? Like, how does that inspire you? Yeah, I, well, just to set the foreground, Kendall is still living here in Austin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the last remaining. The last, the last hold. I mean, did, yes. did yeah, you want to, yeah. did you want to shout out your 787 uh, area code? Uh, some- oh yeah. It is one of those. Yeah. Yeah. We'll leave the last two digits. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave the last <laughs> two digits off. This um, is your <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you're the last holdout in Texas, and ev- is everyone back in New York? Yeah, yeah, in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I think Brooklyn. The move to Brooklyn was really inspiring for me as an artist, just because there are so many artists there that you're exposed to mm. new sounds and new ways of life that you don't really interact with that much in Austin. Um, mm-hmm. the music scene here, while it's awesome and really supportive and vibrant, it's pretty small. And so you kind of just start like running in the same circles sure. and it was a shock to the system, but also a nice, like kick in the ass too. Um, yeah. Surrounded by like new things and new art inputs. Yeah. I mean, I, I've now lived in Austin about, 11 years and I think you were here like five or six was here four four well (laughs) a lifetime an era if you will um yeah and it was we were playing a lot of shows when everyone was still in Austin like once a week at one point yeah Um, and which was good great experience but it did like get to the point where you know we kind of felt like we extracted you know what in that moment was happening with the Austin music scene for sure. And New York has definitely expanded that horizon, I guess. Yeah. I love New York. I love visiting and staying and eventually I will be there. Um, But I love it for just how chaotic it is. It's like the chaotic and like anonymous nature of it. You can be whatever you want there. (laughs) Yeah. I I think chaos is a, I would say I would, definitely if I had to pick a few descriptors of my time there yeah uh, would be the top <laughs> one um all right let's hear a song first one up we have is sailor mouth what's the story behind this track this was probably the first song that was rewritten mm. for the yes. album um but closest to close to the original, the original song yeah um yeah I loved I think this was like our first segue into the more Americana country leaning stuff while still um, kind of holding on to our like shoegaze alt rock mm. side. Um, and that was a really fun, uh, fun blend of sounds to work with. Um, and it kind of set the tone for the rest of the album. Awesome. Uh, all right. Well, here we go. Sailor Mouth live from Why Bonnie here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
welcome back. That was just Sailor Mouth. And we are here with Kendall and Blair of Why Bonnie. And so I know that the majority of you were living in Brooklyn and writing and collaborating, but you are adamant about recording the album in Texas. Why did you want to go back to your home state to put this album together? I think it just made the most sense. (laughs) Like we had, yeah, like you said, we toyed around with the idea of recording in New York and then we talked to someone in LA and while we loved both those studios Mm -hmm. and producers, it just didn't feel right to record an album that is so, so much about Texas Mm. anywhere other than Texas. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And the, Tommy Reed, who we recorded with at Lazy Lazy Bones, mm-hmm. uh, he like you know it fit more with the songs and how they evolved. Whereas the original like ten that we were working with um, were a bit more shoegazy, like sure. synthy type songs, and they evolved into this. We brought in the acoustic piano for the first time. Um, and and so forth and so now i perform with the stage piano but yeah it just made sense financially and you know tommy has worked with his younger sister hannah and lamelda and that was a, a album that we all really revered um and it was great also we hadn't seen each other since the pandemic when we got together yeah and that was like just a very fun and wild time yeah we- restorative we were out there we were lucky enough to be out there for two weeks and it was like we're we're talking middle of nowhere like yeah nothing around you yeah (laughs) i mean i feel that the video really captured the reason and expanse of like what you're doing out there um for 90 november and just being like, yeah, I too would like to hang out in a barn and feed cows and look at the stars, especially yeah. after being, I don't want to say like cooped up, but like after the yeah. being in any sort of city location, like, yeah, great. My, yeah. my my friends were creating art and we're just out here. Yeah. This is like it sad to say, but I remember being out there been like wow I haven't felt like happy in so long (laughs) this is like the first time I've felt happy honestly or like comfortable and like yeah I don't think that's sad to say I think a lot of people was just felt this pressure and this doom especially if you wanted to create something that wasn't immediately look it's it's awful like it's tragic we're still living through COVID and whatever everything else and then at some point you're like, how much is that on my shoulders? Am I allowed to create? Am I allowed to like make my art? And so to find like a little slice of, of freedom in heaven and the permission to let yourself be happy is like, could be a weird feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it, even like after it was a very slow and like fluid process as well. Very like forgiving and supportive. Mm. And a lot of the writing kind of came together as we were in the studio, we were there for two weeks and we tracked in like less than a week. So we had all this time to kind of, you know, fine tune and rewrite or whatever. And that was 
conducive to the happiness we were experiencing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a, a very positive, overall just wonderful time. Yeah. I mean, also an interesting time to be in Texas given all the shenanigans, which is the nicest way to put what the government yeah. has been pulling. Yeah. <laughs> I, how yeah. do you – I mean, it's like – it's tough because I, I love – parts of texas like i love some of my favorite people are there some of my favorite food is there but like it is tough to wrestle with like sometimes the idea of texas Mm -hmm. which is can be complicated how did you how do you balance that of being like hey like this is where i'm from this this is like the state that birthed me and made me but like there are some bad things going on definitely and i think that's for all texans just a really at least the Texans that have a good head on their shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think some Texans are like, we are moving in the perfect direction. Yeah. Sadly. Thank you, Abbott. Thank you, everyone. Keep yeah, at it. Right. Yeah. Which is sad. Um, for us, I think it's like always going to be a tough relationship mm. because like you said, there are so many parts of Texas that we love and there are so many people in Texas that we love and it's our home and it's a part of us that we're never going to be able to shake. Mm -mm. And at the same time, it's, it's like, you can't, you can't accept what's going on and you want to believe that the, the good fight is still being fought, but yeah, it's complicated. And I think that really ties into a lot of the themes on the album too, Mm. where it's, like the idea of home is complicated and it's not like always pretty and it's mm. not clear cut and it's kind of very much how I feel about Texas in general. Yeah, it's it with everything that's been going on, I would say it's definitely been overwhelming existentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yeah, it you know, growing up, you're not thinking about all of these kind of existential, political, socioeconomic issues and whatever. And we had a very, you know, privileged, like, blessed childhood in sure. Houston with our families. Um, and that was great. Like, our memories of Texas are very pure in, like, the bayou is where we grew up in Galveston. Right. And, like, that's where it is. And, um you know, when I think about now and like the climate, it is, it, it is sad, <laughs> yep. but I do love being here at the same time. So it is complex. Right. It's like, it's important for people who are not Texan and not Southern to mm-hmm. remember that not everyone in Texas is a Bible beating gun toting bigot. Yeah. And sure. that there are still people here who are like I said fighting the good fight and want to see a change and I think that those people deserve the utmost respect absolutely it's easier to fight in Los Angeles yeah when you know where the wind is going to blow versus seeing someone like Beto out again and being like is this Sisyphusian like is he just gonna pour all this in to get beaten down again because people are like, we need, you know, abortion rights yeah. or lack thereof, no matter who, no matter if he's right or not. 
it's easier, it's tougher to be in some place like Texas and say like, I have these different thoughts than the government and the people that surround me. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, let's hear a song. Uh, <laughs> um, Hot Car is up next. Uh, what are we going to hear? Uh, what's the story behind it? This song's definitely the contrast song on the album. Mm. It's not so much of a doesn't have like a sunny disposition like a lot of the songs on the album do. It's more like contemplative and somber and supposed to evoke feelings of isolation and introspection. Um, Yeah. This is my favorite one also. All right. We can get into the psychology of this being the contrast song and this being your favorite one right after uh, we hear this live, but hot car. Why Bonnie on snacky tunes here on heritage radio network.
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just Hot Car live from Waibani and we're here with Kendall and Blair. So I have to imagine being out on the ranch, being with each other, a lot of cooking going on. Um, Yeah. And I am a huge fan of Tex-Mex. Oh, yeah. um, In general. Um, I'll shout out Paul Vos in Austin. I don't know if that's on your list. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That would have been the end of the interview (laughs) if you said no. But um, uh, (laughs) were you doing like open fire cooking? Like what was was the vibe out on the ranch when you were recording? We like – like made grocery lists every mm. couple of days and had kind of like a decision of who was going to cook the meals for us. Like mm-hmm. one day Josh made carnitas, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Also Josh was extremely efficient with the drum tracks and would just be like slow roasting his carnitas mm. and then like hit a track and then go back. Yeah. Oh um, hey, I got, I got 15 minutes less. On this brisket, so we gotta, we gotta, yeah. we gotta go. <laughs> so wrap we gotta it go. Up. We gotta go. Wrap it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we we cooked. We made like a like chicken thighs and chickpea stew. Mm. Shout out, yeah, Allison Roman on that one. <laughs> I mean, Shout out. We are a band of foodies. We love mm. to cook. We love to. Eat. eat we love to talk about food um which is one of the reasons we are so excited about this podcast yeah i know it's yeah. so great when people actually some people don't like i don't know we <laughs> you know jimmy johns were on the road no like no shame on jimmy johns but i'm just like you know what we're about here it's food and music yeah i love it yeah no we like listen to gastropod in the in the van together, together. Yeah. interesting oh so yeah. you go for like the deep food stuff yeah. We love the food. We stuff. love discussing food. We love discussing how we prepare food. Yeah. All right. So there's five of you. There's uh-huh. no way you can all agree on food all the time. When you're on the road, what is the process of picking like where you're going to eat? Like, is there someone who's like, this is what we're doing. I've done the research yeah, I, through the decision making. So I am big on like each city we go to, I like like on our way there, I do a lot of research on like Love what it. the best restaurants are close to the venue. Always close, yeah. Um, yeah, because we've got to keep it close. Um, try and keep it in the price range. Of course. I also like to do like if we're going somewhere that's famous for a certain dish, I try to seek that out. Mm. Um because that's like the most fun part of traveling is those famous dishes. And I won't name names or cities are sometimes like, this is the famous dish. Yeah, totally. (laughs) You're like, well, I did it. I did it. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And I, I was at the source, but interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. God, what was the thing we had in, uh, in Ohio, that weird patty, that weird. Oh, the German, um, get, Getta. Getta. At a diner, we have Getta. I'm not familiar with Getta. G-U-E-T-T-A? It's like I a don't meat know, patty. Like David Getta. It's like David Getta. But yeah, like David Getta. David Getta's <laughs> meat patty. When that meat patty drops, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, it's like, uh, it comes from, I, I want to say Germany. Yeah. But, it's like cornmeal you know, and corned beef or something. Yeah, like oats. It was a way that like peasants stretched the uh sure sure sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. how much meat they had to cheapen i mean whatever. like i i grew up with with scrapple in philadelphia 
which is like a buy meat product that is yeah. just yeah that's sort of like fried on the griddle yeah and it's the same if, thing if you don't grow up with those flavors and that texture and you're like i like it from birth i could see why people are like and no thank you <laughs> i think we ate it like out of like what is that diner called god big boy it was big boy <laughs> is that what they're called oh big boy yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We ate it at one of those. Yeah. Right. And when we asked, they were like, what do you mean you don't know what this is? And yeah. we were like, okay, I, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Are you, are you familiar with Migas? Do you know what those are? Yeah. <laughs> right, like, right. You know? They were having a get a festival during the time so, we were rolling through. Oh, um, man. Yeah. All right. all right. All right. All right. Hey, again, no shade or shame <laughs> on the individual culinary practices. That's what makes the world go round. But Absolutely. some of them are just are like I I just not my not my vibe. Right. I I mean, not to put us on a high horse. We we eat a lot of Taco Bell. Sure. Yeah, a lot. Like a lot. It's my preferred when we're on the road. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. You know, it's uh, you know, there's just there's only X amount of consistent options when you're on the road and you're on a yep. budget. Yeah, and Wawa and is a great one too. We I love mean, let's just talk. Wawa. Let's just take a minute. And I doff my cap to you for the Wawa reference because that is my number one jam. My wife it's, is it's also so Philly. An oasis. And we will land at the airport and go straight to Wawa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's look, I, I, I've been going there pre um electronic sandwich ordering system. That was always rolling <laughs> the dice. Dang. Uh, but now now it's really it's really tapped in. You really just can just go in and just get the perfect, you know, shorty or oh, uh, that you want. Yeah. So good. They have everything. Even when you're trying to be healthy, you never think a gas station salad is going to hit. And then it does. And then it does. <laughs> it what does. I, I got their chicken parm sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't believe in. Yeah. Kendall didn't believe me. <laughs> and I was like, it's very good. I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll go on the record and say that... Um, my go-to sandwich is the tuna salad sandwich, which definitely I'm like a one of one. Like it is gross <laughs> to people, but I've been eating it since I was in high school. It tastes exactly uh, the same. I love it. And I just go, give me, give me double scoops. Love it. Double scoops. Yeah. I think we would protest in the car. Yeah. No tuna. no tuna in the car. No, no, Brussels, um, sprouts. no, no Brussels sprouts. Chance oh. yeah. nuclear Brussels sprouts recently. It smelled like a, God, they were hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I would respect if I was in van life that uh, it had to be either consumed hastily outside of the van or I would have to go yeah. with like a turkey alt order or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You got to yeah. be considerate of your fellow bandmates. I mean, of not course. that fast food doesn't have a strong aroma, but... Um... I know the tuna fish is... Uh, look, I, look, when I lived in college and I make tuna salad, my roommates would be like... We fucking talked about this. Before. I do yeah. actually love tuna. Oh no, I love yeah. tuna. It's just like I do, I do. But there, it's it's you either got to be all in with everyone, and it's got to be appropriate, and it needs to be yeah, right. It's a time and a place for a tuna sandwich, you know. Yeah. Um, well, listen. Um, I want to make sure we have time for one more song. Yeah. But uh, if people want to check out the album, see when you're going on tour. Do you have any tours coming up soon? What do you yes. got coming up? Where are you playing? Where are you hitting? So this week we're actually doing a Texas tour. Okay. Fun. We're doing Austin on Friday and then San Antonio, Houston, Tyler, and Dallas. 
And we'll then, do a Studio 1A yeah. tomorrow. Well, at the local college radio station in Austin has this great live video. I know the local college. I used yeah. to live in Austin. It's the best. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. You know. yeah. Um, Shout it out. Yeah. And then we're doing a November run as well on the East Coast. Yeah. Nice. We're hitting some big, big cities out there. Um, what's your uh, sweater scarf game like? Is it is it good? Is it strong? We're trying to build up that repertoire. Yeah, Kendall and I actually just bought the same trench coat. Trench coat. <laughs> so we're gonna walk in looking like the Botsy twins. Just uh, just head over to Prototype and they'll sort you. I'm sure. Yeah, they'll, the they'll vintage get you. store. Vintage store. You know it in Austin. Oh yeah, South Congress. Yeah, South Congress. Uh, yeah. Yes. I guess yeah. I, I really didn't go to South Congress a lot when I lived here. It's like They're the nice. best. Shout out to Audrey and Emily. They run they they have great selections. You can oh, look nice. fresh on tour. They do. They do have a great selection at Prototype, I've got to say. Well, and if people want to check out the album or follow along on social, where can they go? Oh. Oh, sorry. Uh, we <laughs> we're everywhere. You can follow us on Instagram. We're probably most active on Instagram. Um our albums out on Spotify, Tidal, Apple YouTube, Music, Apple Music, anywhere you get your streaming on the internet. <laughs> you can find us on the internet. We're whybonnie.com. It's very easy. <laughs> super easy. Um, yeah. All right. So this last track we have is Superhero. Uh, my superhero of the week is the founder of Patagonia, but that's that's my personal uh, personal message. But Let's what is the story up. behind this song? Um, I wrote this song like two days before we got into the studio mm. and didn't really have any plans for it to be on the album, mm. but we were hanging out late night in the studio one day and I just jumped in and started doing like a scratch track of it sure. and it made it onto the album. And I think we liked having it as the last song because it is the most like raw stripped down um like vulnerable sounding song both sonically and lyrically um and wanted to end the album on a positive note which i think it has i i like I that. it like when we were rehearsing in austin and it was like we were all like where's blair why is she taking so long to pack up her stuff <laughs> And she was writing that song. And it, I mean, it, it was only like 20 minutes or something. We were all hanging out in the parking lot. And I was like, we have to go. She's like, one second, one second. And then came out and had written Superhero. Always oh, waiting on Blair. I'm writing a hit. <laughs> I'm writing hits. You can pack the van. Inspiration is struck. Inspiration is struck. No, I always love uh, uh, a raw, stripped down ender. It's sort of like a, like here's, here's the hope here's what's to come it's it's a it's a, it's a good play um thank you and a great way for end our show today thank you so much why bonnie check out their album it's great check out the video it'll make you want to go frolic with cows in texas um here we go superhero why bonnie live on Saki tunes on heritage radio network we will see you next time
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.